0: Good morning, friends. This is a little bit early, taping this on Saturday because I happen to be in North Richland Hills, Texas, on my way to Angola Prison and Hunt Prison tomorrow. I want to continue our little series on Philippians. We're in chapter 2, verses 9 through 11 today. Uh, My title is Just Who Is Jesus? And Does It Matter? So, who is Jesus? Of all the questions that might be posed to modern men and women, none is more important than this one. It's no exaggeration to say that this is The central question of history and the most important issue anyone will ever face. So who is Jesus? Where did he come from? And why? And what difference does his coming make in my life or yours? Well, in the end, every person needs to deal with Jesus. Now, you can avoid the question or delay it or postpone it or stonewall it or pretend you didn't hear it. But sooner or later, you must answer it. It's certainly not a new question. It's as old as the coming of Christ to earth. Once when Jesus took his disciples on a retreat to a place called Caesarea Philippi, he asked them, who do people say that I am? Well, they offered four responses, John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. You can read that in Matthew 16. Even when he walked on this earth, people were confused as to his true identity. Across the centuries, the discussion has continued to this very day. Visit any internet religious chat room and you'll find a bewildering array of opinions regarding Jesus. Now here are some contemporary answers to the question, who is Jesus the Christ? A good man, the son of God, a prophet, a Galilean rabbi, a teacher of God's law, the embodiment of God's love, a reincarnated spirit master, the ultimate revolutionary, the Messiah of Israel, Savior, a first century wise man, a man just like any other man, King of Kings a misunderstood teacher, lord of the universe, a a deluded religious leader, son of man, a fabrication of the early church. Well, which answer will you give? Now, before you answer, let me say that you can find people today who will give you every one of those possible answers. Does that surprise you? It really shouldn't. It is said that in the early days before Elvis died, he'd been reading a book called The Many Faces of Jesus. That title stands as a fitting symbol of the confusion surrounding Jesus in our time. 2,000 plus years have passed and still we wonder about the man named Jesus. Well, that takes us back to Caesarea Philippi. After Jesus asked for the opinions of others, he turned to his men and asked for their answer. But you, who do you say that I am? Now see, in the end, each of us faces the same question. We, We can't get away with quoting the opinions of others. You need to make up your own mind. So let's go back to the original question, who is Jesus? And how does your answer stack up with the Bible? That's an important second question because it's not enough to say I believe in Jesus. I mean, Satan does too. I mean, millions of people claim to believe in Jesus who don't have a clue about what the Bible says about him. So which Jesus do you believe in? Well, thankfully, we don't need to wonder who Jesus is. For 2,000 years, Christians have affirmed their faith in Jesus with these words from the Apostles' Creed, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. See, with this phrase, we enter the second major section of the Creed. The Creed itself is, the Creed itself is Trinitarian, with a section devoted to the Father, uh, then one to the Son, and the final section to the Holy Spirit. Of the 110 words in the Apostles' Creed, 70 occur in the section relating to Jesus. And that tells us something really important. The Christian faith is all about Jesus. He's the heart and core, the touchstone of all that we believe. So you can be mistaken on some secondary issues and still be a Christian, but if you're wrong about Jesus, you're wrong in the worst possible place. Our faith in Jesus must be more than just an emotional experience of having Jesus in my heart. See, our faith must rest on the revealed truth about Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. And if we take this little clause from the Apostles' Creed and examine it, we can see that it contains four statements. I believe in Jesus. I believe he is the Christ. I believe he is God's only son. I believe he is the Lord. Now, each of these statements deserves close examination. One of my favorite authors, J.I. Packer, notes that when the Creed calls God the maker of heaven and earth, it parts company with Hinduism and by extension with all the Eastern religions. When it declares that Jesus is the Christ, God's only son and our Lord, it parts company with Islam and Judaism. This claim for Jesus makes Christianity utterly unique. These titles were commonly used by the early church to describe their faith. Sometimes they used the familiar symbol of the fish, which in Greek is iklus, and We probably spell it phonetically I-X-T-H-U-S. Those letters were an acrostic for four of the words found in this phrase of the creed. The letter I is the first letter of Jesus in Greek the letter x is the first letter of christ in greek the letter letters th stand for the first letter of god in greek the letter u is the first letter of son in greek and the letter s is the first letter of savior in greek so that word ichthus and that fish symbol stood as shorthand for jesus christ god's son our savior well who is jesus well the apostles creed gives us four answers first he's the savior I mean, the name Jesus means God saves. Scholars tell us that it was actually a common name for Jews in the first century. There were at least 10 other men named Jesus who lived in Judea at about the same time as our Lord. And there were at least five Jewish high priests who were named Jesus. Well, the name itself is the Greek version of the Old Testament, Joshua. It speaks to the fact that God has entered human race on a human on a rescue mission from heaven. That's why the angel said to Joseph, you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Now, when we say we believe in Jesus, we mean that he was fully human and yet fully divine. A man like us, yet a man who possessed the very attributes of God himself. He was the God man and he came to save us from our sins. Well, second, he is the Christ. Well, let's dispense with one idea very quickly. Christ is not Jesus' last name. He didn't grow up in the Christ family. Christ is not a family name, it's a title. To, pre- pre- to be precise, we should always call him not Jesus Christ, but Jesus the Christ. Now the term Christ describes one of Jesus' divinely appointed titles. The word Christ comes from a Greek word that itself comes from a Hebrew word that means the anointed one. We often translate it as the Messiah. In the Old Testament, prophets, priests, and kings were anointed when they formally began their service for God. The anointing was a sign that God had called them to their position. To call Jesus the Christ means that he is the one whom God promised to send to deliver Israel and bring salvation to the world. So at Christmas, when we sing, Come Thou Long-Expected Jesus, we're actually referring to this truth. See, a river of connected history flows from Genesis to Revelation, spending thousands of years and hundreds of generations. Those who believe the Bible have long argued that although it contains 66 books written by many different people over about 1,500 years, it has but one message, God's plan to bring salvation to the world through Jesus the Christ. Now, in one way or another, everything in the Bible fits around that great theme. I mean, Think about this, the Old Testament, anticipation. The Gospels, Incarnation, Acts, Proclamation, Epistles, Explanation, Revelation, the Consummation. The Old Testament says he's coming. The Gospel says he's here. The Book of Acts says he has come. The Epistles say he is Lord. And Revelation says he's coming again. See, the Old Testament contains many promises of his coming. He'll be the seed of a woman, that's in Genesis three fifteen. He'll be a descendant of Shem, Genesis nine twenty six. He's a descendant of Abraham, Genesis twelve, two and three. He will be a descendant of Isaac, Genesis twenty two eighteen. He'll be a descendant of Jacob, Genesis twenty eight, fourteen. He will come from the tribe of Judah, Genesis forty nine ten. He will be a descendant of David, second Samuel seven, eleven and sixteen. eight, he will be the born of a virgin, Isaiah fourteen. He will be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5.2. Now, the question is, friends, who will fit all those qualifications? Now, many people could fit the first few on the list, but only one person in history fits them all, Jesus, the Christ. So we say to our Jewish friends with love and with respect, the one for whom you are waiting has already come to this earth. He came 2,000 years ago. He is your Messiah. His name is Jesus, the Christ. To say that Jesus is the Christ means that he is the one sent from God to bring God to us and to bring us to God. Now, second, he is God's only son. This phrase speaks of his relationship to God the Father. The little word, only, tells us something crucial about our Lord. In the King James Version of John 3.16, we are told that God so loved the world that he sent his, quote, only begotten son. Now, what does the phrase only begotten mean? Well, it comes from the Greek word monogenes. I have a hard time saying myself. Monogenas. The word mono means one or only, as in the word monologue, one person speaking to many people. The genus part is related to the English words gene or genetics and gender. So when both parts are put together, only begotten means one and only, or absolutely unique, or one of a kind, and there can never be another of the same kind. This term stresses the absolutely unique nature of Jesus the Christ. Because the Son shares in the same nature as the Father, Jesus could say, I and the Father are one, in John 10.30. His Jewish hearers understood him to be claiming equality with God. To call Jesus God's only Son means that he shares the same essential nature as the Father. From this truth comes the doctrine of the Trinity. One God, eternally existing, and three divine persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One church father explained the relationship between the Father and the Son this way. As the spring is not the stream, and the stream is not in the spring, yet the same water flows through both, even so the Father is not the Son and the Son is not the Father, but they share the same divine nature. See, the Nicene Creed says it very succinctly when it calls Jesus the Christ, very God of very God. He's not similar to God, To call him God's only son means that he is God the Son, and thus worthy of the same worship, adoration, praise, and reverence that we give to God the Father. Now many people today, including some theologians and many liberal Christians, fight against this truth. They want a Christ who is somehow divine, but is not truly God. They want a Jesus who is a good role model, but they don't want him as their God. A good man? Yep. The Son of God from heaven? No. But that's not possible if we take the Bible seriously. C.S. Lewis explained our options this way. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him or kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing sense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. That quote is from his book, Mere Christianity. Well, fourth, he is our Lord. The final title given to Jesus refers to you and me. He is our Lord. The Greek word is kurios. This word occurs many times in the New Testament. It was also common throughout the Roman Empire. Its basic meaning is absolute ruler. To call Jesus Lord means he's sovereign over the entire universe and has the right of sovereign rule over you and me. Romans ten nine says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead you will be saved. Now notice how simple. Jesus is Lord. To confess with the mouth means more than simply saying the words. It means to agree from the heart that you believe what you're saying. And in order to understand this properly, we need a little bit of background on how the Romans ruled their vast empire. Because the empire stretched from Europe into the Middle East and across the north coast of Africa, it encompassed many provinces and thus included many local religions. Now scholars speak of the mystery religions that were found in many parts of the empire. Each of the various religions has its own code of conduct, its own sacred scriptures, its own pattern of worship, <coughs> uh, forms of worship, sacred rites, priesthood, and on and on. Now because these religions tended to keep people pacified, The Romans left them alone as much as possible. Rome required only that taxes be paid and that everyone be required to say, Caesar is Lord, and then go on about your business. And for many people in the empire, this was no big burden. But Christians steadfastly refused to say Caesar is Lord. I mean, how could they say Caesar is Lord when their faith taught them that Jesus is Lord? They could not and would not deny the Christ. And that is why during the days of persecution, Christians were slaughtered, murdered by the thousands, crucified, burned at the stake, run through by the sword, thrown to wild animals. This is a great dividing line that Christians would not cross. In the first century, if you stood in a public gathering and cried out, Jesus is God, no one would be upset. But if you shouted, Jesus is Lord, you could start a riot. Let's be crystal clear about this. Rome did not persecute Christians because they believed in the deity of Christ or that Jesus was the promised Messiah or that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. Rome did not kill Christians because they said Jesus was the only way of salvation. Now, those were religious beliefs that did not threaten the state. But when Christians declared Jesus Christ is our Lord and there is no other, that was a direct attack on Caesar, Caesar worship and thus punishable by death. That's why the lordship of, of Jesus matters so much. To call him Lord means we surrender all we have to him and we follow him gladly wherever he leads, whatever it costs. So let's return to our original question. Who is Jesus the Christ? As hopefully this message today makes clear, halfway answers will not do. He is the Savior. He is the Messiah. He is God's only Son. He is our Lord. So what shall we say about all of this? First, that it is biblical. Second, that it is historic. And third, that it is true. This reflects what the Bible says, what the church has always said, and what is in fact true about Jesus the Christ. I know that it is not popular to make such dogmatic statements today. Most people, sadly even some Christians, prefer not to emphasize those defining issues. It's certainly not politically correct to talk about Jesus this way. I mean, you're trying to divide people, someone says. Well, yeah, I am. I mean, sometimes we need to be divided. It's better to divide over truth than to unite around an error. When we say, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only son, our Lord, we declare to the world that this is what we firmly believe and hold dear in the core of our hearts and minds. We confess this to be true without regard to what others may choose to believe, and we do it regardless of any opposition that may come our way. Let me read that text again from Philippians 2, 9-11. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friends, God has given Jesus the name that is above every name. God has ordained that one day his Son will be universally recognized as the Lord of heaven and earth. Now, many people didn't recognize him when he walked on the earth. People today still don't know who he is. But the day is coming when all of that will change forever. When that day finally arrives, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus, the Christ, is Lord. All creation will physically bow before the Son of God and acknowledge his lordship. And note how universal this will be. It will include all creatures in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That would include angels and saints in heaven, all those living on earth, and the dead and the demons and Satan himself under the earth. No one will be left out. All will be included in the universal declaration that Jesus the Christ is Lord. And bowing the knee means submission to him as Lord. Confessing with the tongue means that there is no other Lord but Jesus. So fix your, this thought in your mind. Jesus will have the last word. He will be vindicated before the entire universe. Even his enemies will bow, and in the end no opposition against him will stand. This is not universal salvation, but it is universal confession. Not all will be saved, but all will confess that Jesus is Lord. Now, friends, if we're going to someday bow down and worship him and proclaim him Lord, I don't want to wait. I want to bow my knee right now and worship him as Lord. So here are your choices. A, you can confess him now with joy as your Lord and Savior. Or B, someday you can confess him as Lord in shame and in terror. We need to declare this, especially to those who don't want to hear this. Not long ago, a friend told me about a family member who said in all seriousness, if you ever mention Jesus to me again, I'll never speak to you again. Now, when such moments come, we need to respond with words like these. You know, friend, I don't want to lose your friendship, but I need to tell you the truth. You were made by Jesus the Christ. You owe your life to him. One day you're going to stand before him as judge. Sooner or later, every knee will bow before him, confess that he's Lord. You can do it today as your Savior, or you can face him one day as your judge. But you cannot escape him. The choice is yours. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess. That includes your knees and your tongue. Will it be in love and adoration, or will it be in abject terror moments before you're cast into eternal hell? So Jesus said in Matthew 11:28, Come to me, all you who are weary and are burdened, and I will give you rest. He is your Savior. He loves you. He invites you to come to him. He gave himself for you. So today is the day of your salvation. Tomorrow is the day of judgment. And if you haven't as yet, I'd say, won't you come to him today? I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. This is the Jesus of the Bible. This is the Christ we worship today. This is the Savior we call Savior and Lord. This is the true Christ of the living faith. There's no one like him, for he alone is God incarnate. His words have a ad- divine authority because they are the words of Almighty God. One day the entire universe will bow down and worship him. We have no other Savior and we follow no other Lord. The martyrs died because they would not worship anyone else. We will not exchange the Lord Jesus Christ For anyone or anything, he alone is the Lord. And oh, that our hearts would sing his praise. And may God hasten the day until every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus the Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Until next time, see the vision, live the mission, feel the passion.